Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Hello again, Andrew. Well, a slightly different subject this week. Um, up to date, uh, a book that's very much in the news. Uh, and um, I, I like the fact that we're getting, you know, very wide ranging in what we're doing. We are. I'm really impl- excited about today's show, actually. And um, thank you once again. I'm still in Australia for getting up early. Very good of you. That's okay. You're such a pal. Now, I've got, in terms of just um, starting the show in a cheerful way, here we are, some new reviews. Are you interested, Andrew? Yes, please. Entertaining, insightful, and clearly well-informed, says Merlin M. from Canada. The two principles draw on a wealth of background information with charm and clarity. Which are you? Are you charm or are you clarity? Uh, I don't know. I don't mind being either. It sounds like one of the, the little dwarves. But um, brilliant. Yeah, that sounds uh, great. And I mean, I think, you know, we're beginning to get our subscribers. We're talking to various people about how we might monetize it. And so it looks like we may be here to stay. Well, let's hope so. Um, yeah, well, you know, well, it was a month ago we started begging people every week to try and subscribe on YouTube. And at that point, we had 420. I've just checked. We have 750. So we've added 300 and so, more than 300. And if you could keep going, um, just to repeat very quickly, if you like the show, if you like us, if you just want to keep us going, support a couple of old hacks, um, please um, go to YouTube and click subscribe. It's completely free. And I know most people listen to us on Apple or Spotify, but helping YouTube Google empire, those are thousands of subscriptions will really help us. So please do that. And yes, let's go to today's show. Um, Katja Hoyer, BBC correspondent, written this really quite controversial book about East Germany. Have you read it? Uh, yes, I have. Yes. Uh, and uh, it was a real eye opener because, I mean, we don't really read much about uh, East Germany. Uh, and actually, many of the, the, the strengths of, of the regime uh, we sort of forget. Uh, and of course, it's so recent. Um Certainly within our, you know, uh, recent adult lifetimes. Well, so, yeah, it was a real, real eye-opener. 
we've bored people before about how we met in the 70s. Uh, did you ever get to go behind the Iron Curtain? Well, I went with the uh, Conrad Adenauer Foundation just after the war came down. So that was quite interesting with a delegation of sort of young political leaders of different parties. Uh, and so, and what struck me was we went to Potsdam and Dresden. They were having to put us up on hotel ships because there were, weren't the, there wasn't the accommodation. And I remember very um, vividly seeing how East Berlin was hadn't really been rebuilt since the Second World War. Lots and lots of sort of bullet holes and walls. So it was. And it was, of course, a very powerful image for us growing up, you know, going to Berlin, going through the occupied territory with the guard dogs and the snow and the guards. Um, you know, we are products of the Cold War. And, and this is the Cold War, in a sense, being played out. Yes, and she's, um, I'm sure she'll say herself, she's no fan of East Germany, just doesn't want it to be written off as, as simply the sort of the baddie in a Cold War drama. You know, there's other things going yeah. on as well with the people. Well, it's all part of our theme, you know, that we need to look at different interpretations of history and and sometimes looking at it with fresh eyes, a revisionist approach gives us a completely different take on things that we've taken for granted. You're being very wise this morning. Thank you. <laughs> well said. All right. Well, um, I think that's probably enough from us for the moment. Shall we go and meet Katya? Yes. Good idea. Okay, here we go. Hello, Katya. Hello, Phil. Hello. Welcome to our scandalous world. <laughs> scandalous sounds a bit ominous. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a good question to start with because I, I think there are probably quite a few people in in Germany, in the old East Germany, who maybe don't think the doping scandal is a scandal, um, that it was actually something that they're still rather proud of, the incredible achievements in sport at that time. Um, yeah, I mean, I try to, because it is one of the cliches about about East Germany, you know, talking about, um, you kind of imagine these these very masculine looking women on on sort of steroids. And, and yes, that is absolutely one side of, of sport in the GDR, but um, I try to give a somewhat more complex view of that in the book um, because I think, you know, you couldn't have just taken somebody off the street, given them some steroids, and then, um, you know, they would have just come up with all of these sporting uh, achievements out of nowhere. I think it's it's also um, uh, the, the fact really that East Germany placed a lot of value on or put a lot of value on sports um, and the fact that people from a very young age were sort of encouraged and identified to sort of take part in specific uh, you know sports that they were then trained um for very early on and those achievements i think are also worth uh, recognizing the fact that there's often years of training and and sort of you know dedication involved in these things um is is the other side of the story and also the fact that just kind of sports in general was part of of life you had to carry on doing it you know, at university, regardless of what you studied, you still had to go and, you know, uh, go swimming at like seven o'clock in the morning and all the rest of it, because it was just considered to be to be part of life. Well, I should just say to those who are interested, um, Katya's book is a bestseller. So I think a lot of people watching and listening to this we may have already read it, but I really recommend it. It's a completely new way of looking at a country which has been, as you said, caricatured, stereotyped. You know, it's all black and white. It's all the Stasi. It's all people trying to escape. And you kind of bring it to life as a real place with real people and uh, some real achievements. So, so I hope so. I mean, it's it's not really, and this is, I think, where it's been misunderstood by some elements of the of the German press. Really, it's it's not a not a rewrite in the sense that I'm trying to say 
it was good when it was a dictatorship. I mean, that isn't, I, I, I find this kind of good, bad debate a bit reductive, this kind of idea that, you know, you're just trying to introduce some elements of it that weren't quite so bad. It's really about complicating the picture and telling the whole story rather than um, trying to play these stories out against each other. I find it very odd when people say to me, um, you know, my, my father sat in a in a Stasi prison for three years so how can you talk about Trabant you know and, and the point is that they both of these things existed and and all of these stories ex existed and they all need to be told they're all part of history and that's kind of what I'm trying to do so rather than saying you can't say or you can't talk about this aspect of life in the GDR because this aspect existed you know what I'm trying to say is they both existed and there's not a but between them but an end you know there's the, the both of these stories um, our real life experiences that people had and they both need to be um, part of, of German history. And there's still a nostalgia in, in East Germany for that time amongst many people, isn't, isn't there? Um, yes and no. I mean, some people are nostalgic, I think, more about aspects of their life that they felt they had and that they felt have gone. I mean, this, is, this goes down to very basic things like food stuff, say, for example, where... Uh, people were used to certain types of, um, you know, soup is, is a classic example. I just remember now because um, there was a huge row around that last year when uh, Rewe, which is one of the biggest German supermarket chains, decided to bring East German soups back on the market and then put them on the shelves with very nostalgic labels. So you had like little pioneers you know on there with their with their scarves you know and, and they were sort of waving at you from the from the pea soup can um <laughs> and the uh, Stiftung Aufarbeitung which is like the foundation state funded foundation for the memory of the GDR found that very reprehensible and, and actually wrote to Reva to say can you take these soups off the shelves because they're relativizing the the kind of horridness of the dictatorship um, and I think that's that's conflating two things here. This is people remembering the sort of sounds, smells, feel really of their earlier lives. So, you know, if you like Solyanka soup, which is a sort of Russian type um, sort of soup with, with sort of meat and, and, and vegetables and stuff in it, um, which was very typical and very kind of widely uh, eaten, that doesn't necessarily mean you want the dictatorship back or the wall erected or even, you know, kind of Germany divided again. They're, they're two different things. Um, oh. And quite often then this term of nostalgia or nostalgia, as the kind of nostalgia for the East is called, is, is then used to try and conflate the two things. Sure. I mean, the reaction... Sorry, did the reaction to the book in East and West Germany vary or, or was it pretty consistent? It varied depending on what people's personal background is. So, for instance, one of the um, uh, kind of most vocal and most harsh critics um, is, is a man who was in charge of or who was one of the editors of the Spiegel magazine during the Cold War, um, which is sort of on the Western side, the, the foremost political magazine and therefore very much at the forefront of the ideological divide. And he's now... Uh, nearly 80 years old, um, you know, and, and has got kind of this whole ideological thing still going on in his in his mind. There's still the GDR is almost like still there, and you need to kind of make sure that it doesn't its ideas or its kind of system doesn't spread. It's, it's a very raw thing for people like that. Um, but then also in the East, you have people that either um, kind of think the book's a good addition to the debate because their own lives haven't really been reflected in the way that the GDR has been talked about. Or you have people who feel um, because of their experiences with dictatorship, often imprisonment, incarceration, trying to flee um, these kind of very 
real human tragedies who now feel because I'm putting their stories side by side with people who worked in, in factories or who were soldiers, teachers, border guards even, um, that I'm you know attacking their personal memory or their personal history of the GDR. So it's whether people's own background is directly related to what the GDR was and what it did, how people feel about the book, I think. And that's why it's, it's been so um, uh, sort of emotionally uh, discussed in, in Germany with so much sort of either anger or euphoria, um, depending on which side you're on. But there's certainly a lot of it, um, kind of emotional baggage that comes into the debate in Germany. Well, let's just turn to the to the questionably, possibly scandalous section anyway. Um, you know, I, I made a documentary about 12 years ago about the, the East German sports programme, um, which was uh, really interesting. And I did actually also encounter quite a few people, even if they were very angry at how the state had treated them, they still didn't want to give their medals back. They still felt they earned them and deserved them, which I thought was really interesting. But maybe for people who don't know, you could explain just why sport was so important to East Germany and that it was a new thing. I don't think they were allowed into the Olympics for quite a long time. And then suddenly, bang, they kind of took it over. How did that happen? Well, they, they were allowed in because they, in the sense that there was an all German team to start with. And this is in itself quite a diplomatic feat when you think about this, you know, in terms of choosing the athletes. I did not uh, know that. Is that I did not know that. There was an all German team at the height yeah. of the Cold War. Yeah, um, wow. to start with, um, because obviously, uh, you know, there, there was still this logic that the GDR wasn't um, acknowledged as a, or recognized as a state, as a separate state. Uh, and the division was temporary. And so you had an all German team competing to start with. Um, and that then um, changed once uh, kind of two separate teams were set up. And from that moment, it was very possible or very um, kind of tempting for the GDR to use sports as one of the ways in which you create an East German, separate East German identity, because, of course, the division was entirely artificial at the end of the, the um, Second World War. And you can't just suddenly say, you know, you're different from your relatives in the West uh, because we happen to draw a line in the middle of Germany. So sports was one way where you have one team competing against the other. You're going to cheer one on and, and not the other is basically the logic behind that. And, and that's why it became important. And that's why people got kind of political medals in some part as well. So, you know, you could do something for your for your fatherland, as it were, by winning uh, a gold medal in the Olympics. And then the other side of that is that with uh, socialism, particularly under Walter Ulbricht, the first leader the, for the first sort of 20 years of the first two decades of the GDR, was that there, there was this kind of idea of a certain lifestyle that came with being a socialist sort of citizen. And this was kind of like the, the sort of clean life that we were supposed to lead where you look after yourself and you're part of, of a sort of society and part of that was to be healthy and to be um you know kind of active as it were so for example um you know as you went through your life you weren't really losing sight of sport in any shape or form so you'd encountered it at school in kindergarten throughout university or when you did apprenticeships those sports clubs existed people still played say football for example even in middle age because it's part of of the mm. sort of overall culture clubs were often attached to to factories and workplaces you know we kind of after work get together to to play a game of football whatever it may be so it was very much part of of life in the gdr but the people i mean people did know i think i should just say you know it wasn't just East Germany came into the Olympics as an independent country. It dominated it. I think, actually, it won more gold medals than America in 1976, which was, like, an incredible thing. 
everybody was a little bit suspicious. And some of the women we spoke to for my film, um, they, I think they sensed that something was, was was not normal in their bodies because they were developing all sorts of strange characteristics. But they also felt that it was almost like their patriotic duty not to ask questions. And I think also they enjoyed the fact that they were they were superstars. Um, and then, of course, people started to die. A couple of people died, and then people started to get ill. And slowly but surely, it unraveled. Um, but it did. I don't know how much of this you investigated uh, yourself, but it it seemed to come really from the very top. But there were almost quotas sent down to these sports clubs that you did mentioned, saying, "We want two gold medals from this factory club. We want three gold medals from." Um, yeah, something- and this is partially achieved through doping. So, you know, and, and interestingly as well, it's it's one of those things where memory differs quite a lot as well. You had people who were, you know, injected or, or kind of were given these uh, steroids in particular without their knowledge, but many people also knew about it. Magita Guma is a classic example where um, she was one of the first people and she was very well aware of the fact what she was given and, and what it would do to her sporting achievements, but also to her, her body. She was still part of the uh, Olympic German Olympic Committee um, after the war came down. And then once it, it sort of, you know, was leaked, what, what actually and, and kind of historians found out what actually happened, um, a huge scandal erupted around that because she was, you know, aware and, and basically complicit in in this, in the way that many modern, you know, athletes are when when they know that they're they're sort of doping um, to to achieve certain things, and the other side of that, as you say, is like a very regiment as part of the planned economy. You also had the planned sporting success in many ways. Um, so you know, I, I know this from from my own background. I was only four uh, when the when the Berlin Wall fell, and yet I was already part of a you know gymnastics team at the time. Um, because very early on in kindergarten, somebody decided that I had sort of because I'm very small and compact and I have kind of quick growing muscle fibers or whatever they're called. So, you know, very good for sort of building up muscle quickly. Um, and so therefore they decided when I was sort of, I think, two and a half, um, you know, that I should be part of this kind of gymnastics program. And I carried on doing this after the wall fell as well and, and sort of, you know, became a, a gymnast at the at the time. Um, but this is also the way to do it, basically, or the way that they did it was that they identified people so early that you could still kind of shape them, you know, be that with with the drugs or through the training, but you still have very kind of moldable um, or malleable rather um, young bodies that you can still, you know, shape in the way that you need it for that particular sport. And I think that explains it. But nevertheless, it was a remarkable, you know, uh, sort of series of, of victories there when you look at it throughout the 80s. In every, I think I'm right in saying, in every single Olympics, winter or summer, the GDR either came first or second um, throughout that time. And you know, for such a small country to do that, of course, had a huge political, um, made huge political gains for them because of the you know kind of pride that people took in it. There are lots of documents. I mean, there was one. I think it was Jena Farm was the company in Leipzig, state sort of pharmaceutical company, makes this yeah, in Jena. I think, isn't it? I mean, Jena, uh, yeah. Jena Farm. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was called Aura. Turbinable, turbinable, some kind of steroid um, that they gave these women. And some of them later in life were measured. And they actually had more male, more testosterone or a t- t- testosterone equivalent in their bodies than the famously doped Carl Lewis, the American male athlete from the 1980s. So really, they really were. They really did mess around with these women, whether they knew yeah. it or not, whether they were complicit or not. But it, it, it's, I really thought about this when I read your book because we took an American swimmer from 76 to meet her, the German woman who beat her. 
And this woman had complained about her treatment, Petra Tuma, she was called. She wasn't happy with what had happened to her and the health problems that she had. But she was not going to apologize to this woman for winning the gold medal, which I think the American expected. So there you had the dichotomy, I think, in that little exchange. That we were proud. Yeah. That we did work hard. We did deserve something. Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult thing to do because ultimately, if you're part of that, um, you know, system and you also feel that you are a victim of the system yourself, you know, you're effectively apologizing for having your your own kind of body manipulated. And even if uh, some women sort of knew that they were given substances, it's very hard to know how much they actually knew about the consequences of that, you know, in the long run. Because, um, I mean, the the research that the GDR did into this also showed that even when you stop giving people steroids, their bodies are still permanently altered. Um, so, you know, that's also how they how they got away with it. Effectively, you don't have to give these drugs permanently for people to to sort of have their body ultimately change permanently. Um, so I think the people that were involved in it, particularly women sort of felt afterwards um, and perhaps at the time as well, that they were kind of locked into a system that wasn't of their own making. And then to apologize for something that, that happened to you um, and that was done to you, I think is, is quite a, a big step um, in, in that you know, in that sense. Well, the starsification of the of athletics, which may be a phrase you don't like, that was used by somebody in our program. Like I said, this was 10 years ago. Apparently there were 3,000 people in the sports clubs who were giving weekly reports to the stars. Yeah, because it was so heavily politicized, the whole field. I mean, this this is one of those examples, be that sports or the army or politics or, you know, basically areas that the state felt are um, essential to its propaganda and to its functioning as a as a dictatorship and as a state. Um, they were incredibly, you know, heavily watched and, and also encouraged to watch each other and, and to inform on, on one another. So uh, if you worked in any of these sort of very politicized fields, um, it, it was very unlikely that you wouldn't either be watched or be asked to watch other people and, and report back to the state. And there was clearly quite a lot of concern at the higher levels. We found this memo. I mean, we didn't find it. It, was, it came out in the various court cases that followed the fall of the war where Somebody in the Ministry of Health had, 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 had read a report about an American who doped. And let's not forget, other people were doping, maybe not as sort of systematically, but there was doping going on in sport all over the world. And an American woman had doped herself with a similar drug. She got pregnant and then had really unpleasant birth deformities with the child connected to the, all the hormones that, that were racing around her body. So they actually put all of these girls from 15 upwards on the pill in East Germany, they made them take the contraceptive pill because they hated the idea that it could all come out, you know, if, if one of them was to get pregnant and have a, a, a deformed child. So they were they were planning it down to that incredible, they were literally managing the menstrual cycles of their own athletes as it was so very, very kind of particularly focused on, you know, what would, the, the date that they were going to compete, um, they, they planned literally the, the, the samples they had to give so they could get through the limited testing there was. It was, it was probably the most impressive, uh, detailed kind of sports doping thing that's, uh, system that's ever happened in the world. Um, yeah, and also the one that sort of perhaps dehumanized its, its you know, athletes the most. I mean, you do have a very um, regimented regime there because these people are effectively assets to the, to the state. Um, and in their view, you know, almost like, soldiers or you know people who 
who fight for the state quite literally, you know, this is kind of the sporting equivalent to that in the sense that, you know, so, you know, when you, when you think about the way that soldiers were given drugs to be able to perform better or, or stay awake longer, you know, almost irrespective of what this would do to their bodies, because that's irrelevant to the, to the state at that point, this battle has to be won. And I think that's how the, the GDR perceived as sporting athletes as well, to the point, you know, where they got medals, basically, if they, if they won from the state. Um, as well as kind of the, the medals that they won in the sporting competitions. So this really was kind of the new battlefield for, uh, you know, of the Cold War really, or one of them. Um, and that's why these these people weren't seen as people, or as humans necessarily to the state, but as as warriors for the for for the for the cause. I mean, the fruits uh, of their labor. Things that surprised. Sorry, what were the things that surprised you most when you when you researched the book and the reaction uh, from the press and readers? Um, well, when I researched it, I think uh, just the way in which, um, you know, these kind of all of these different stories come together as very different ways of seeing the GDR overall. So you, it, it completely depended who you talk to, you know, how people would interpret, for instance, the, the build of the Berlin Wall, uh, the fall of it in the end. All of that is very, very heavily linked to people's own experiences in the GDR, far more so than it is with history further back. And whilst I knew that and I had an understanding of it, I wasn't quite prepared for the kind of raw emotionality of some of it, um, where, you know, people were sort of literally, you know, sort of choking as they were telling me something or, or kind of, you know, you saw the, the sort of either the anger or the emotionality sort of coming back as people were telling me their, their life stories. Um, and they stuck with me sometimes for a very long time because you you know you you're talking to a real human there and, and their experiences and it, it was interesting to me how that coloured their entire um, kind of view of what the state was and 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 what it was to them and about the responses I found it really interesting that the further you are away from this emotionally um, the the kind of more positive people were about my book so in the UK for example where people you know, yes, many people have been to the GDR, which I also find quite surprising, by the way. Um, but um, they have a very kind of detached view of things. So you had the whole political range all the way from the Daily Mail with Peter Hitchens, who thought, you know, he could see the the sort of sordid tales from beyond the wall in, in my in my book, um, called it, I think, A Filthy Little State, but a fascinating book at the same time. So he gave the book five stars and then all the way over to The Guardian and The Observer, who wanted to see sort of the human face of socialism in it. So when you have emotional detachment, I think mm. you can take something and see something in, in my book where, you know, because I leave these stories relatively uncommentated and I try not to moralize in the book, um, that was one side. And then you take the same book into Germany where most older people certainly have got some sort of direct um, relationship with the GDR, with, with, you know, aspects of the regime. And you get extreme reactions. I mean, if you look on Amazon, uh, I mean, the book, uh, you know, as you said at the beginning, was a bestseller in both countries. But when you look at my reviews on Amazon in in Germany, the vast majority of people have given the book either one star or five. You know, whilst in the UK, you know, it almost doesn't matter what your background is because you have a neutral or not neutral, but certainly a less emotional attachment to the to the thing. The book's kind of read in a different way. Um, and it's got nearly, it's got something up, I don't know, 4.7, 4.8 uh, stars on, on Amazon from kind of ordinary readers. And I found that really interesting, the way I, that, I really like the, so recent. I like the way you pointed out that actually, certainly in the 70s, maybe the 60s, 
East Germans were, were seen as one of the success stories of the Iron of the Warsaw Pact. You know, they had quite a bit more money than others. I remember going camping in Czechoslovakia in '84, and the East Germans would come down. It was one of the few places they could camp. And my wife spoke German, and they were the ones bringing like cases of cognac and expensive food, and all the Czechs were quite jealous of these East Germans. They were seen as like the yeah. soft, big spenders. I had a really interesting conversation with uh, Leah Ippi, who's from Albania the other day, and uh, she said exactly the same thing. She said Albanians almost didn't make a difference between East and West Germans, despite the fact that these were very different countries. They just saw them as kind of the people who did things better, you know, where where people had food and and sort of lived in <laughs> lived lives in luxury, or at least in the in the imagination of the Albanians, they did. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously compared to West Germany, there were huge shortages, you know, down to the fact that the toilet paper, you know, was was horrible and thin and, and rough because there, there wasn't enough paper to make a, make proper toilet paper. Um, or look at the Trabant, you know, you had to make the whole sort of body of the of the cars made of, of a material called Europlast because there wasn't enough steel to make proper uh, chassis and, and these kinds of things. So there there are of course shortages, but at the same time that they, they did have the highest living standards in the in the communist world and, and life wasn't um kind of uncomfortable to the in the in a material sense. Um to the point where people were, you know, certainly not from the sixties onwards, people weren't starving, they weren't um, you know, living in, in kind of the ruins of the Second World War um anymore. But they, you know, whatever you think of the aesthetics of these Kind of prefab blocks. They they did provide comparatively spacious and and certainly warm um, and cheap accommodation. People only spent four percent of their of their salaries on their rents. So materially speaking, you know there was a relative degree of comfort, if not luxury, um, of course, because of the kind of lack of consumer goods. Um, but people were comparatively, um, you know, sort of uh, yeah, comfortable in their day to day lives. Well, it's it's only a boring uh, personal anecdote, but on that camping holiday where we, we met lots of East Germans and got on really well with them, and this is the era of, you know, Reagan and the Cold War is very hot in, in the early 80s. And there's a lot of tension in the world. It was lovely to meet people like that. One of them was a geography teacher. And he said to me, do you have by any chance a map of Scotland? Because <laughs> he wasn't able to buy one, apparently. Mm. And we did because we'd been there. And he... He actually broke down in tears. We gave him this map and we signed it. May one day we will meet in Scotland. And it was kind of like there was the sadness, I think, people. that mm. They knew you know, that was a bit of a dream to, to be able to go into the West. But of course, these athletes, just to go back to the doping, one of the, one of the great things about being an athlete was that you could travel and you had perks and you did get to go to Scotland and Montreal and other exciting places. Mm. Which others didn't. No, that's very that's very true, and and again, this completely depended on who you asked. I mean, I I talked to many people who felt exactly like that, and they felt that the world was very very small behind the Iron Curtain, particularly as it wasn't always easy to travel even within the Eastern Bloc because of, you know, they were worried because the East German economy was a bit more advanced, and and you know, if you took too much currency basically out of there and into other countries, that you'd sort of mess up the economy there so you could only exchange a certain amount which was often not enough to actually live off that money that you were able to exchange during your holiday so people did these things where they just packed up like you know tins of food and put them all in the trabant <laughs> alongside the family which uh, must have been an interesting jigsaw puzzle trying to get all of that into the cars um, because they couldn't buy enough food there and then have like souvenirs and, and buy other things on holiday because you weren't allowed to exchange enough 
food. So many people craved, you know, proper travel, going to the West, particularly America, always held a huge fascination for many um, East Germans as kind of the ultimate West, um, really, you know, this kind of this kind of glorious uh, promised land there with with its open prairie and the fascination for cowboys and jeans and all the rest of it. Um, but then I also spoke to lots of people who said, you know, they'd never dreamt of even going on holiday because, you know, when you think in 1949, you know, you had many working class families who had previously lived through the Second World War and the, the Great Depression and Nazism and the tumultuous period of the Weimar Republic and the First World War before that, they hadn't had stability or even the money or even the inclination to say, right, I'm going to take two weeks off or even one week off my my workplace because they couldn't have done that and then gone on, on holiday with the whole family. And the GDR made huge efforts to try and, and provide a holiday program that was accessible to people through workplaces um, where, you know, it was comparatively uh, cheap to that's, go, say, to the Baltic Sea or, or, you know, skiing within East Germany. or, or That's, to, that's you know, so interesting. Like, so people basically, because, because of the turbulent decades, some of them quite liked the fact that life was simple and, and there was no drama. And if you kept your head down, you could... Yeah, and they had nothing to compare it to either. I mean, you know, this isn't... People didn't... Um, and this is often forgotten because West Germans kind of carried on as they had done in 1990 when the wall fell and this was to them normal. But East Germans hadn't been part of the system. They had no way other than through... Uh, television, which gave you obviously a very slanted view when you see like the Western world through adverts and, and sort of, you know, TV. Um, they had no idea of what it was sort of like to live in the West. And also there's there's recently been actually a comparison of, of kind of holiday uh, experiences east and west and many west germans didn't travel abroad at the time as did many brits you know they didn't they didn't go anywhere until sort of you know package holidays came along and i'm not saying the you know everybody but the kind of bulk of people the mass of people um and that's very much the same for for east germany and people also forget you know how varied the landscape actually was you could go skiing as well as have a have a sort of you know sandy beach holiday because the beaches at the baltic sea are actually very lovely and you know you have kind of these experiences of people remembering their you know their holiday in 1979 or whatever which may have been the first big kind of holiday you've got paid time off for your workplace for the first time as well, East and West, the same amount of days of, of paid holidays. Um, so these things also exist. And once again, it completely depends who you ask, you know, in terms of whether people felt hemmed in or whether people felt, as you say, kind of a degree of more safety within this very small world that they, that they lived in, depending on, on who you were and what you wanted from life. That's so interesting. Why did you decide to write the book? Um, because I feel that, well, first of all, there isn't an overall comprehensive history of the GDR, which I think is in itself quite interesting. Um, so I, I think there was a gap there in the sense that it, this kind of story of the state needed telling in a more comprehensive way. Um, and secondly, I feel, I mean, I, from my own background, you know, coming from, from just about still being born in East Germany and my, uh, you know, the people around me, people, neighbours and teachers and so on, Many people literally roll their eyes every time the GDR is mentioned on TV because they feel it's a very one-sided um, way in which their own biography is often discredited in their view. You know, people feel that their stories aren't being heard and that they had to be quiet. Even Angela Merkel, who I start the book with, who's, you know, arguably the most successful East German, having led the country for 16 years um, afterwards, 
said in her last speech um, before she left office, the last public so big speech, um, that she felt her East German background, 35 years in, in East Germany, were just written off as, as ballast, as, as something that, you know, you have to kind of leave behind and, and throw away and then start again. And, you know, this is this is still she's not 70 yet. This is still the majority of her life that she spent in East Germany. And to kind of just write all of that off um, because it doesn't fit into the kind of happy ending narrative of, of 1990 um, makes very many East Germans kind of feel somewhat um, aggrieved or disgruntled about the way that, you know, their their kind of past is, is portrayed. And that's not to say that, you know, Angela Merkel would, would probably say that herself. She wouldn't, you know, say that the, the that the state was lovely or that she would want it back or, you know, there's no denying that this was a dictatorship that that was very oppressive and did very terrible things to a lot of people. But at the same time, people still led lives in it. And I think, you know, trying to write that back into the German story as something more than a footnote or like a devious dark side strand of German history is, is also something that was important to me, as I think it is to many other uh, people who come from that part of the world. What about your family? You're, you must have relatives, uh, uncles, aunties, parents, perhaps grandparents. Did they give you one store or five? Depends again who you ask. Within them. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's exactly the same in my family. I mean, even, you know, as I, as I said earlier, within the same biography. So I give an example there of my dad in the book where, you know, he, he was a, an officer in the People's Army. He, he went there in the first place because men had to in order to study or do like advanced apprenticeships. Um, you had to become a, a sort of temporary officer to be able to study because the state saw it as a kind of quid pro quo, um, you know, thing. Um, but at the same time, he ended up in solitary confinement, which nearly drove him mad uh, because he made a silly joke when when they were practicing for for debate, or it was you know kind of suggested to him it might be better to to separate from my mum before they were um, uh, before they were married because she had relatives in West Germany, and they basically said you know, we can't trust you with like really sensitive radio technology and, and signaling and, and stuff like that um, because your wife's got relatives in West Germany. So the Stasi literally got him in his office and said, in their office and said, you know, don't you want to think about, you know, a different sort of choice there in terms of founding a family? So I wouldn't, you know, if it was for the Stasi, he I wouldn't, wouldn't even, exist. He wouldn't <laughs> even exist. So, you know, if they'd had their way. So, you know, within the very same biography, he wasn't a very political, you know, man at the time. He kind of just wanted to get on with his life as most people do. Um, but at the same time, you fall foul of the regime in, in all sorts of ways in, in which you don't even mean to do that basically just by you know you happen to have a girlfriend who happens to have a, a an uncle or whatever it may be in in west germany so you know the this within my own family you find exactly the same contradictions that the state throws up um and i think from that angle you know it's, it's worth pointing out these contradictions and i think we just have to live with them rather than trying to find a way of, of kind of converging them into the same story. I think we just have to tell all of these stories as they are, um, you know, because they happen that way. Well, that's such an int interesting and different perspective on something that I'm sure most people just think they know, you know, it's just written off really as a historical kind of accident or failure. And you've really yeah. brought it to life. Uh, and, and I think it's such an really interesting and different kind of book. Congratulations. And also it's so so recent. I mean, I think we forget that I mean here you are a very young person who lived lived this. Yeah, and also the the legacy of it. I mean, these things don't just vanish when the when the state vanishes. You know, for instance, like the fact that women were largely in full-time employment, over 90% of East German women worked. 
I grew up with this as a perfectly normal thing. Like I'd come home from school, you know, being seven, eight years old with my key in my hand. I'd cook my my lunch, do my homework, you know, help a bit, help a bit in the household because in in that was kind of the East German family idea was that children from a very young age have to help with all of these things and become more independent because both of their parents are are working. And that's something that didn't just go away. Uh, you know, my, all of my friends were in the same situation. And to us, that was this was completely normal. We only understood much later that for most uh, kind of West German children, their their mothers would be at home until they're at least school age, sometimes even longer, or sometimes even you know completely sort of um, be housewives. And that concept just didn't exist in East Germany. The concept of just be, well, um, I don't mean just in a derogatory sense. I mean the concept of being a housewife basically was just not a thing. Um, and these legacies, I think they last um, because they give people a certain way of life and a certain kind of way of seeing the world with which you grow up and, and which doesn't kind of just suddenly vanish. Well, thank you so much for, for, for stopping it vanishing and bringing it all to, to life in such great colour and for sharing some of this with our, um, with our audience. We're, we're very, very grateful. Yeah. Well, thanks, thanks for, for having me. I'm always I'm always grateful to to have a chance to talk about these things in a well, you know, in a constructive and very good luck yeah. with the book. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.